And so we do that tonight, Lord. We lift our eyes to you. Uh, we turn our eyes upon you, and we thank you for you are the anchor for our souls. Lord, no matter how much the wind blows and the the sea roars, uh, God, we look around at our world today and and see this this pandemic and uh, God no matter what's what's happening we can always come to you and we can always hold on to that anchor so I pray Lord you would help us tonight Good Friday in the year 2020 uh, to truly turn our eyes upon you and to see you in a different way to see you as faithful to us to see and to understand your great love for us. And Lord, we would in turn surrender to you and worship you afresh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Good Friday in the year 2020. I'm glad you've joined with us tonight. And I uh, just want to take a moment to welcome you. A couple of fast announcements before we get into the content tonight, uh, Happy Easter, and uh, it's different this year. We're we're all depending on electronics and our screens and all of those things, but thank you so much for, for tuning in, and I have a couple of resources to share with you this Easter weekend. Uh, the first you'll see on the screen there, uh, Sight and Sound Theaters, which is based in the U.S., uh, they have these uh, amazing uh, productions of Bible stories, and they are Broadway quality. You pay $50, $60 U.S. just to get in. Uh, my family and I, and I have been there several times in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, actually. And so instead of driving hundreds of miles to see a production on Easter weekend, you get to see one for free on television or on some type of Internet device. Uh, the Trinity Broadcasting Network actually ha has picked up uh, the production of Jesus starting today in through Easter Sunday. There's a link on your screen. I think all you have to do is set up a login. No cost to you whatsoever. It's a great production to watch with uh, your family. You will really, really enjoy it. Take advantage of it because Sight and Sound never does this for free. All right. Uh, also, if you have kids in the house, uh, little, not super, super young. They might be a little scared by this, but certainly the tweener age or teenage kids, uh, they will love Pilgrim's Progress, the classic allegory by the evangelist John Bunyan. This has been made into television and various kinds of media many times. The most recent is a fully digital animated movie, uh, which we watched the other night. It was fantastic. And they are running this, I think, in about nine or ten languages uh, until April the 30th. And there's a link on your screen there, watchpilgrims.com, and you can watch that as well. I know a lot of people like to watch some of the old, you know, the Ten Commandments and all that. You pull that out on Easter weekend. So those are a couple of free resources for you. Remember to visit us online at citypointchurch.ca. And you can watch all of our content on Facebook as well, okay? Um, we're going to get right into it tonight because this is going to be very different. For some of you, this is going to be very new. This may be the first time you've heard some of this. I want to ask a very, very basic question 
tonight and look at it from an angle that you may not have seen before. I did something quite similar to this about three years ago, uh, but I'm going to spin it even a little more tonight. And I want to answer the question, why was Jesus crucified? Very simple question. Why? What is the reason why Jesus of Nazareth was executed on a Roman cross some 2,000 years ago? Maybe some of you are, are watching this. You're saying, well, Jesus died for our sins. Good night. Uh, well, it's not really that simple. And I think if you just put it in that type of term and you're minimizing uh you're minimizing the event greatly, all right? I want you to learn it from a different way um, and approach it from a different angle tonight, okay? And by the way, if you're visiting with us tonight and maybe you're not religious at all, you have no religious view or you have a different religious view, then you are most welcome to join in. This is really done for you. Um, so I want to try and answer that question, but I'm going to start tonight by answering it from a historical angle and from a uh, a legal perspective from the laws of the land back in the first century, okay? Um, by the legal standards of that time, and you can ascertain those things uh, through various resources that will tell you what those standards were. Uh, there was the Talmud, the Mishnah, the Midrash, uh, historians of Philo and Josephus, and these people are very helpful, and these bodies of literature are very helpful for us to understand the way that the Hebrew and Roman legal system worked back then, because Jesus faced a trial and then a, an execution. Um, and so I'm drawing heavily tonight uh, on the works of uh, Walter Chandler, this is a 21st, uh, 20th century uh, writer, who wrote a great book on this called The Trial of Jesus, uh, The Life of Christ in Stereo, great book by Johnston Cheney, and really anything by Dr. Paul Meyer uh, on this subject. You will want to get a hold of their work, the videos, the YouTube stuff, anything by those three, uh, especially Dr. Paul Meyer. The other two have passed away. Uh, but um, excellent resources, okay? So by the legal standards of the day, when you understand those things, the truth be told, Jesus never should have been executed. The trial should have been stopped uh, in its early process. It should have been stopped because this whole thing, when you understand how the system worked back then, this whole thing that we celebrate on Good Friday never really should have happened. So I'm going to go into some of this, and I'll be really quick, but you can review the slides. Uh, again, we're going to keep this on our Facebook page. We will also post it on our website. Uh, you can share it with others as well because it may be new for others. I'm going to show you a bunch of slides and show you a bunch of the problems with the trial and the arrest and the execution of Jesus. And all the pictures that you see, or most of them, are actually going to be from uh, one of the best movies on the subject, which is Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. That's a good one to pull out every Easter weekend, even though it's extremely violent. Uh, it does follow the contours of the story very, very well. Okay, so I'm going to go through this real, real quickly, but uh, I think you'll get the overall thrust of it, all right? Number one, uh, it was illegal to perform an arrest at night 
You remember Jesus was arrested traditionally. This is thought of as Thursday night. This was illegal. You could not do that at the time. Uh, with the aid of an informant, in this case the informant, the traitor, was Judas Iscariot. This was illegal with no intent to conduct a legal trial. This whole thing was pushed through to try and get Jesus arrested and somehow dealt with, hopefully uh, executed. This is what uh, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the people who wanted to get rid of Jesus before he would cause some type of uproar at the Passover. These three things were, were uh, illegal. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell us the story. The chief priests, the elders, the officers of the temple guard, and the high priest himself. They plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way, and that's the way it's written, and kill him without disturbing the Passover feast. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they say that Jesus was arrested very late on traditionally Thursday night. We know it was very late because Peter, James, and John were sleeping. Oh, Jesus, when he went to pray, he had to wake them up because they were sleeping. Uh, the key figure in the, the arrest was an informant. This is Judas Iscariot, and he obtained 30 pieces of silver from the chief priests and the officers of the temple in exchange for the betrayal. All right, It was illegal to take the prisoner and examined the prisoner at night. You see a picture there of the, actually that's the Sanhedrin, uh, by a judge or a magistrate sitting alone or in private. When you look at the whole narrative, Jesus actually went through six trials. You've got one before Annas. You've got one before Caiaphas. You've got one before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. You have one before Pontius Pilate, one before Herod Antipas, and then back to Pontius Pilate before being executed from Thursday to Friday. You have all those things that happen. John, he gives us detail on uh, these private and separate examinations by Annas and by his son-in-law Caiaphas, which are held at night. But th that was all illegal, should not have been done. I think my volumes are looking good. Yeah, okay, thank you. Uh, this was all done at night, illegal. So right off the bat, you start seeing all this stuff begin to happen, which really, technically, if you know the laws of the land at that time, should not have happened. It was illegal to accuse the prisoner vaguely uh, and assisted by the high priest and no real witness. Matthew and Mark, they record the indictment in front of the Sanhedrin, where you have these false witnesses who come forward, and they, Matthew and Mark tell us even their testimony wouldn't agree. And finally, you have two who come forward with a testimony of sorcery, which is based on a misunderstanding of Jesus' original statement. Uh, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days and they distort this and they say that he said i will destroy this man-made temple and in three days we'll build another not made by man they made it seem like jesus was referring to the temple itself when jesus was actually referring to his own body we will revisit that in a few moments and then caiaphas he invokes what you call the oath of the testimony in that time and he says i adjure you by the living god you tell us are you the son of god yes or no and they and they charge him 
with blasphemy, but Jesus has no defense. He has no, there's no real witnesses. There's no lawyer, if you will, for Jesus. This is all not supposed to be happening. It's illegal for the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, to assemble themselves at night. And we know that they did because that's when it was way after the arrest when uh, and again Jesus had to wake up three of the disciples who uh, were fishermen they would have been used to being up late at night trying to catch fish so the Sanhedrin is meeting very late at night this is illegal Matthew and Mark record that that's when it happened illegal for the Sanhedrin to convene with two indictments before the morning sacrifice which is exactly what they did so back then the law and worship and the way that people conducted legal things and legal proceedings and worship, these were very closely related. So you couldn't indict a, a person um, uh, this before the morning sacrifice. It had to be done after the morning sacrifice. Okay, Matthew and Mark, they record these indictments. You've got sorcery, I will rebuild the temple, supposedly, and blasphemy, uh, being the son of God. This is very, very late at night. And they've got two indictments on him, but the morning sacrifice hasn't even happened. Uh, it's illegal for the proceedings to be conducted on the day before the Sabbath. Again, you see that slide there. Uh, no Hebrew court could meet on a Sabbath or a feast day or a day coming before a Sabbath or a feast day. There you're dealing with a high holiday. This is the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. And we actually did that on Wednesday night. You want to check that video out. And so they, they couldn't have done this, but, but they do. And we'll just pause for a second. It is amazing that nobody stopped it even at that point. But nobody did. Uh, it was illegal for the sentence to be founded on an uncorroborated confession. So Matthew and Mark, they record this charge of blasphemy, uh, asking uh, when, when Jesus is asked, are you the Christ? Jesus remains silent, then the high priest invokes the oath, right? I'll, I'll read you the passage. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title from Daniel chapter 7, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven, right out of Daniel chapter 7. Then the high priest tore his clothes and screams out, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. And they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? But there's no corroboration of this confession. And it, this is the whole condemnation is founded on something that's uncorroborated. Right. And they're supposed to. But of course, they do not. Um, it is illegal for the Sanhedrin's verdict to be unanimous. Uh, if none of the judges defended the prisoner back in that time and they all found him guilty, the verdict was invalid. You had to have some type of loyal opposition. You had to have somebody who opposed it. Um, and it's interesting, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, both members of the council, 
apparently do not speak up if they're we're assuming that they're they were there it's not mentioned but nobody speaks up not one person in the three jewish trials of jesus steps up to defend him or even state that the proceedings are riddled with illegalities three jewish ones being um, uh, what caiaphas annas and the uh, the sanhedrin uh, it was uh, illegal to sentence the prisoner to death outside of what was called the Hall of Hewn Stones. Uh, this was a part of the temple, and here we have the high priest meeting um, uh, somewhere outside of that place because it's not mentioned in the scripture at all. They probably met in the confines of where the high priest was, but not in the Hall of Hewn Stones. And um, it, but this was a capital case. And there you have the high priest tearing his garments. Um, he doesn't have proper balloting to judge. It, it, the whole thing is a mess. It's riddled with problems. Um, they did not happen. The, the, uh, this process in front of the Sanhedrin in the right place. The high priest is not even supposed to tear his garments because those are made after the express commands of God. As per Leviticus and Exodus, no balloting. I mean, who, where is the person who stands up and says, stop this, this is wrong, what we are doing is wrong. Nobody's doing that. It keeps on going forward, and uh, all of it is illegal. And so the conclusion of the trial is, send him to Pilate. We find him guilty of something where we want a public execution. The Jews did not have the right to do that publicly. If they wanted to do that, it would be illegal. Maybe they would try and stone someone illegally, but they wanted this done in front of everybody. And so they want a public execution, and so they go to Pontius Pilate. Uh, but it's interesting, when they go to Pontius Pilate, they got, they've got different charges, different accusations. Uh, they say he's uh, politically subversive. They say he refuses to pay taxes to Caesar. They say that he claims to be a king. Um, and so two out of three of these are not really going to get Pontius Pilate's attention. You know, political subversion, well, refusal to pay taxes to Caesar, well, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but claiming to be a king, hmm. See, there's only one king as far as uh, Pontius Pilate goes, and that's, that's Tiberius Caesar, his boss. And so Pilate is not going to ignore that, but he is going to examine uh, Jesus privately. You'll see a slide on the screen there, and carefully. And there is a reason why, and, and it really helps to know a little bit about Pontius Pilate, again, from Philo, and Josephus, we can learn about him. Paul Meyer, Dr. Paul Meyer is amazing in writing about this and explaining this. But there are three, three political blunders in Pontius Pilate's career going up to Easter weekend. And it's important for you to, to be aware of these things. Pontius Pilate seems to be acting very much out of character here. Uh, what we do know of Pilate from Luke chapter 13 is he would use violence uh, quickly if he had to. We see some kind of incident there where Pilate very violently uh, seems to have a group of Jews 
killed and mixes their blood with their sacrifices, Luke tells us. Ooh, it's very gross. Uh, but Pilate, he was that type of leader. However, there were three incidents in his political life that may have resulted in Jesus handling or a pilot handling this Jesus problem very, very carefully. The, the first one was the issue of the Roman standards, these, um, these flags uh, that had uh, pictures of, uh, of Caesar uh, being paraded through the city of Jerusalem, and the Jews did not like this at all because this was like a graven image, and uh, they worship no one but Yahweh, and we don't make graven images, and they didn't like the fact that Pilate had these Roman standards parading around the city, and this resulted in a potentially very violent uh, confrontation at a race course in Caesarea, actually. And the Jews challenged the Romans, and the Romans said, you better back off. And the Jews, is, uh, the story goes, they stuck their necks out, and they said, well, you go ahead and you take our lives because we're not going to tolerate this. And um, as the story goes, Pilate backed off, and he didn't act violently in that case. Uh, but then he did something else, and he used... Um, what's called korban money. Korban, you'll see also in the Gospels. This is money dedicated to the temple. Um, he used that money to do something good, to build an aqueduct that brought water into the city of Jerusalem. The Jews did not like this either because that was korban money uh, devoted to the temple and devoted to worship, and Pilate just flippantly uses this money to build this, uh, this aqueduct. And they did not like that either. And that resulted in a violent confrontation uh, where Pilate got so upset that he actually had his own men dress up in, in uh, clothing of the commoner. And at Pilate's signal, uh, there were a number of Jews, dozens of Jews that were slaughtered uh, in a violent confrontation. So this was a bad move on, on Pilate's uh, part. And then there was a final problem of the what's called the Roman shields, these little little ornaments or little desktop kind of flags uh, that were in Herod's uh, palace, Herod Antipas's palace. And uh, this actually resulted in a letter uh, from Herod Antipas and the other members of the Herod family uh, after Herod the Great died around the time when Jesus was born. Uh, there were his different geographical parts of his kingdom were handed off to various members of his family, okay? And Antipas and his brother, uh, brothers actually wrote a letter to Tiberius Caesar, uh, frustrated with Pontius Pilate. And the story goes that about six months before the, the uh, Easter story of Jesus' death and crucifixion, uh, Tiberius sent, uh, Caesar sent a letter to Pontius Pilate in Latin. Apparently, it's got very strong language in it, and he basically says, you're on notice, so if there's one more incident, uh, you know, you're, there's going to be trouble. And he puts the pressure on Pontius Pilate uh, in this letter six months before, I think six months before uh, the Easter event. And so here you have a Pilate examining Jesus very, very carefully because if he messes this one up, it could cost him his job maybe even his life. And so what Pontius Pilate tries to do to worm his way out of this one is he sends Jesus in a pretty smart, 
political maneuver over to Herod Antipas because Herod Antipas oversees Galilee and this is where Jesus spent most of his ministry. And so he sends him over to Herod Antipas to try and get him off of his hands, A, and B, if Herod Antipas gets frustrated, he's not going to write a letter to Pilate's boss, Tiberius Caesar. So he figures he's going he's to deal with two things in one shot there. And so he sends him off to Herod Antipas and tries to get clean of this problem. And Herod Antipas just wants to see Jesus perform some type of magic trick. And he questions Jesus. Uh, scripture says he plies him with many questions. And Jesus says nothing. <laughs> Even with the chief priests and teachers of the law vehemently accusing him in front of Herod Antipas, Jesus says nothing. He won't take the bait. He won't play the game. And so uh, Herod then sends Jesus back to Pilate. He, he doesn't want to get involved in any decision. He dresses him up in an elegant robe and returns the favor to Pontius Pilate, sends him back without an indictment for trial number six. And then you see Herod, uh, you see the little picture there of, uh, of Pontius Pilate. Uh-oh, he's got to deal with Jesus one more time. And so now things are getting really, really amped up. And what Pontius Pilate tries to do one more time, he tries one more political maneuver. You see, this thing is dripping with all these details and all this procedure and all this politics. But if you don't understand that, then you're going to miss a really, really important point. So I just want you to bear with me for a few more of these details. He tries another legal option at his disposal, and we can call this the presidential pardon. We see this done uh, in the modern times uh, where political rulers and leaders uh, close to us, uh, the president of the United States does this and has, has historically done this, and this is a presidential pardon, and this is where the leader of a nation uses their authority to pardon a specific criminal, and so he tries to do this. He's got Barabbas on the one hand, he's got Jesus on the other hand, and he tries to have Jesus released and that doesn't work either because there's a crowd that is calling for Barabbas to be released and actually wants Jesus to be crucified. Big, big problem. And so Pilate, one last uh, uh, maneuver is, well, I won't have Jesus executed because I can't find him guilty of anything. I don't I don't find any of these charges that they're sort of cooking up to be very convincing. So I'm going to have him flogged. I'm going to have him scourged brutally and then I'll bring him out and then they're going to release him somehow. So he has him flogged. And yet the crowd, probably manipulated by Caiaphas and company and probably filled with people who worked for the temple, who's all under Caiaphas's leadership, all of those people, they're calling in unison, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He called himself the son of God. And now Pilate, he has his hands tied behind his back because Calling yourself the son of God, this threatens the, the, the monotheism of the Jews. Nobody could call himself, in terms of their essence, the literal son of God. There's only one God. God doesn't have any sons in that sense. And so this, this would put Pilate into a corner where maybe Antipas and company would write a letter to Pilate's boss, Tiberius, and all kinds of problems. So he, he's really up against 
a wall, and then they pull out, the crowd does, um, again, led by Caiaphas and company, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Oh, boy. So, again, history tells us that there was a club called the Friends of Caesar Club in the English language, in Latin, I think it's Amici Caesar. And this was uh, an elite club. And the only way out of this club uh, was you either, um, you either were, volu- you were, you were exiled forever or you voluntarily took your life. I think that was, those were the two punishments. So if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar, or oh, they're really pushing him up against the wall. And so Pilate finally, reluctantly, he says, behold the man, and then you have all of this call for his crucifixion, and he's going to have Jesus crucified. And he says this is done very, very well in Mel Gibson's uh, movie. Whatever you think of Mel Gibson, the movie is still worth watching. And he, the, the, uh, the character says there, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. Very, very ironic words. All to say, when you look at the whole legal aspect of this thing, If you know about the history of the time, again, which is all provided for us, we have to do a lot of work to put this together, but we can do it. If you know the history of the time, none of it should have happened. And what this does is it actually drives skeptics to say, well, this is an obvious invention uh, because it never would have happened. And to skeptics, they say, well, the writer of this tale um, obviously does not think that their reader knows anything about uh, history because anybody who did know anything about history would say this never should have happened. Okay, that's what a lot of skeptics say. Is it an obvious invention or is it a historical account? All right, and this is the big question. Uh, first of all, when when people say, "Well, it never," anybody who knew anything about Jewish law would have looked at this and laughed and said, "This never took place because it's riddled with illegalities." Well, we know for a fact that the people who started reading this certainly knew Jewish law. So the writer of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John uh, and those four Gospels were written independently of one another. You didn't have four guys who got together in a little room somewhere and said, well, Matthew, you write this and Mark, you write this and Luke, you write this and John, you write this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds good, guys. Let's put it together that way. That'll be a really good story. They won't know. They won't know the difference. The audience doesn't know Jewish law. You know, we'll just put it down that way. Okay. No skeptic would even think that that's how it happened. Happen. And we know that this story of the Gospels and of Jesus was being circulated very, very, very early. So this idea that the audience was somehow naive doesn't wash. Uh, and, well, maybe it was all stuffed into the Bible later on. Well, that doesn't wash either. And we've learned all this in our church before uh, in our Jesus Said What series about why we can trust the Gospels. Okay, uh, I want to show you just one little point that is inside the narrative that 
debunks this idea. Because you need to know one thing, my friends. You need to know that when you look at the death of Jesus on the cross, and when you look at his resurrection from the dead, you're not looking at Santa Claus, okay? You're not looking at fairy tales. You're not looking at mythology. You're looking at something that really, really happen especially young people who are watching this especially those of you who may be nuns who are watching this and you've walked away from the church and you've walked away from religion okay maybe the religion that you walked away from was worth walking away from but walking away from jesus and walking away from religion can be two very very different things we're talking about a real man who really did die and who was really executed on that cross and really did rise from the dead in history. And let me show you just something really, really quick um, to help you with this. And uh, this is from John chapter 2. We talked about it before and verses 19 to 22. All right. And um, uh, this is uh, when you have the clearing of the temple when Jesus went in there and he saw the money changers ripping people off for uh, with exorbitant rates on exchange rates for the sacrifice and so on. And um, he he tips over the money changers tables. And and so there's this confrontation. And so it says the Jews demanded from him, what miraculous sign can you show to prove your authority to do all this? And this is what Jesus said way back in John chapter two, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And the Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you are going to raise it in three days? And the writer tells us that they didn't understand. Jesus is talking about his body. He's not talking about the literal temple in Jerusalem. You say, so what? Well, that's written by John. You fast forward to the trial and the crucifixion and you will see that John himself never refers to that passage and never refers to anyone trying to misquote that passage to trap Jesus and get him on a sorcery charge. This is done by Matthew and this is done by Mark but it is not done by John. And again these these four writers did not corroborate in some room somewhere this is all written independently uh, it may be that mark and luke borrowed portions or sorry luke and matthew borrowed portions of mark's gospel uh, because mark's gospel was written quite early but there's no sense of uh, again the four guys getting together and putting together this kind of jigsaw puzzle um, and we see in in matthew's rendering of the trial we looked at it before in Matthew 26, verses 60 to uh, 62, uh, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false witness against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they didn't find any. And then finally, two came forward and said this. This is Matthew saying this. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Mark does the same thing, almost quotes almost the same way. He says, so what? You're boring me, Pastor, with all of this detail. Why does this make you so boring, okay? Well, because what this shows is that it really happened. 
and that Jesus really did say that because here you have Mark and Matthew corroborating something that they never record. They're corroborating something that John records. Well, how's that possible if it didn't happen? Because again, Mark was probably written way before John was. So, I mean, how, how were they able to put it together and create this fanciful story? It's impossible. We know for certain that these events, though they were bizarre, though they were illegal, they indeed did happen. And you see that just by reading and seeing what's called the internal evidence. You say, so what? That doesn't answer the question, why was Jesus crucified? Okay, let's add another layer to the question. The events of the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus are predicted for hundreds of years in the pages of the Old Testament. So I'm going to I'm going to run through really fast and the slides will come on the screen here uh, just for you to get a glimpse of this. OK, not only did this bizarre trial and this bizarre execution happen, the thing was predicted for hundreds of years before. So uh, Genesis chapter three and verse 15, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And you can see the New Testament reference there from Galatians 4 and 1 John 3. Uh, the Messiah would come at a certain time from Daniel chapter 9, giving the whole, the whole historical picture of what was going to come, written way back in Daniel's day. Remember, Jesus used the term son of man to describe himself. That's right out of the book of Daniel that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem riding on a colt. That's from Zechariah 9 and Matthew 21, that there would be a conspiracy against him to try and kill him from Psalm 2 and Acts chapter 4, that he would be betrayed by a friend from Psalm 41 and John chapter 13 in exchange for 30 pieces of silver that would be thrown in the temple, Zechariah chapter 11, Matthew chapter 27, that he would be abandoned by his disciples upon the arrest, Zechariah 13, Matthew chapter 26, that he would be silent before his accusers and that his life would be taken, Isaiah 53, Mark 14, Acts chapter 8, that he would be beaten and scourged, Isaiah 53, 1 Peter chapter 2, that he would be smitten and spat upon, Isaiah chapter 50, Matthew chapter 27, that he would be mocked on the cross, Math, uh, uh, Psalm 22, read the whole psalm, and Matthew chapter 27, that he would be pierced, Psalm 22, Zechariah 12, John 19, that he would be executed with thieves, Isaiah 53, Luke 22, we covered many of these things in our Countdown to Easter uh, series that you can watch, that he would pray for those executing him, Isaiah 53 and Luke chapter 23, that he would be hated without cause, Psalm 69, John 15, that the soldiers would cast lots for his clothing, Psalm 22, John 19, that none of his bones would be broken. Psalm 34, John 19, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah 53, Matthew 27. What does all this teach us? When you look at the, this bizarre trial where nobody raised their hand, 
and say, stop this thing. This thing is wrong. When you look at, I mean, you've, you've got dozens of, of predictions that are made in the Bible's Old Testament that are quoted by the New Testament writers as fulfillments of something that God was predicting for hundreds of years. And I've only gone through some of them. There are some of them that the New Testament writers didn't even catch. I'm just showing you the ones that they did catch. When you put that together and you start thinking about it, this is evidence that there is a powerful and sovereign hand that is working behind the scenes of this whole thing. There is a third party there is someone who you can't see that is pushing this all to a conclusion, that is working the pieces of the puzzle for hundreds and hundreds of years leading to the crucifixion of Jesus. And this hand, this, this hand of power, this sovereign hand, seems to be using people like Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas and Caiaphas and Annas and the Romans and the teachers of the law and the chief priests and the Roman guard and whoever to accomplish this very focused goal of sending Jesus to the cross. The answer to the question, why did Jesus die on that cross, is first and foremost because this is what God wanted. This was the specific and clear will of God the Father, which he worked through the centuries to bring to fruition that day that we celebrate today, what we call Good Friday. It was the Father's will, and he used whoever, whenever, whatever to accomplish his will and his purpose. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. It was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Wasn't Pontius Pilate's will? It wasn't Caiaphas's will, it wasn't Annas's will, it wasn't Herod Antipas's will, it wasn't the Jews' will, it wasn't the Gentiles' will, it wasn't the Romans' will, it wasn't my will and your will. It was God's will. And when God wills it, nothing is going to stand in his way. He is sovereign, he is powerful, and he uses whoever, whenever, whatever to accomplish his will and his purpose. Why did God bring Jesus to this point where he crushed him and made him suffer? Well, for you and for me, for you and for me. And this is a demonstration of God's love for us. This violent, humiliating event of suffering in the life of the only perfect man who ever lived is a display of the love of God for a lost world. So the Apostle Paul says it this way, uh, uh, very rarely will someone die for someone else, uh, though perhaps for a righteous man, someone would dare to die, Romans chapter 5. 
But God demonstrates his love for us in this. Listen to me, you who, who are watching and you feel, you feel a sense of hopelessness as you look at the news and you look at this virus that is, that is uh, uh, taking 100,000 lives worldwide and all kinds of, it's changing all the time. The response is changing all the time. The government leaders don't know what to do. The responses are different. They contradict themselves. People are out of work. People are losing money. People are losing their jobs. People are afraid they're getting sick. There, there's no hope in the air. Let me tell you, God's love was demonstrated past tense for us in an event that we cannot change, that you cannot change, that I cannot change, that a virus cannot change, that a political leader cannot change. God's love was demonstrated to us in this while we were yet sinners. So not good people. While we were bad people, Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous according to God's will. I mean, again, very maybe if we were good people, we could say, well, we might be worth dying for. As unrighteous people, Christ died for us. You can be sure, my friend, that God loves you. You can be confident that God loves you, and he proved it to you 2,000 years ago, written in his own blood. He loves you, and he loves you with everything that he has and with everything that he gave on that cross. He moved history. He moved political leaders. He moved everything to bring it to a place where his will would be accomplished when Jesus was crucified. So I hope that that, that helps you see it in a different light uh, tonight on what we call Good Friday. We are going to move into a time of communion. Uh, there'll be a little slide on your screen there. And I know it's different doing communion uh, and we're not in the same room together, but we're at least on the same screen together. Um, and so there's going to be a little bit of background music that's going to play here. And um, and I want you to take a moment to go in your fridge, maybe get a, get a little bit of juice, a little bit of bread, and just come back in about one minute, two minutes, and uh, we're going to participate in uh, communion together, okay? I'll see you back in about two minutes. You go ahead and get your emblems ready. Thank you. 
I was asked a question today uh, online by somebody uh, about communion and children. And can children take communion? And uh, I encourage you parents who are watching, maybe you're watching this with your children, have your children take communion as early as possible in life. Uh, because that is an amazing teaching tool where you can teach the gospel message to your children as they observe the, the emblems together with you. Um, I think that that's, a, that that's a wonderful blessing when you teach them that because it's so, so uh, simple. Uh, and that's the beauty of communion. And I think Jesus wanted it that way. You can watch our Passover special that will teach you about the meaning of this. From 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to that church, in chapter 11, we often read this when we observe the Lord's table or communion. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And I have a little piece of bread in my hand here. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body. So before then, the Jews took this and it represented the, the, the speed at which they had to get out of Egypt and there was no yeast in the bread. And Jesus adds meaning to this and he says, this is my body. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So for hundreds of years up to then, for the Jews, it was remembrance of getting out of Egypt. And now he's saying, you do this in remembrance of me. And this represents, yes, the physical body of Jesus that hung on that cross, but also you and me, for we are the body of Christ around the world, wherever we're gathered we are the body of Christ. You're in your home tonight. We are the body of Christ. We see each other through this technology, but we are his body. So let us partake together of this bread. And in the same way, Paul continues... In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And I just have a little cup of juice here. Very, very simple. He took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So you remember in the Passover, there was a cup that was, that was they would take this cup f at least four times. And after the meal would be what was called the cup of redemption. And here, Jesus takes this cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So Moses, in the book of Exodus, he took the blood of animals and sprinkled it on the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant of the law. And Jesus here, he takes the cup of redemption and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me again of me for whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink this cup you proclaim and that's what we're doing tonight you proclaim the lord's death on good friday night 2020 
until he comes. Will you partake of the juice with me? Can we have a word of prayer? Father, we do thank you. As we survey time, Lord, as we have so much time on our hands and we think about the past and we uh, think about our lives in the present and as we wonder about the future, we are so thankful that 2,000 years ago, you went to that cross for us. Lord, uh, you moved heaven and earth to make it happen. You said it would happen for hundreds of years, and you brought your promise to fruition to show your love for us. So I pray, God, that we would have a fresh sense of hope, a fresh sense of peace, a fresh sense of courage to face tomorrow because we know that it is finished. We know that you paid the price for our sins. We know that it is done. And Lord, we can have fellowship and walk in peace and communion and relationship with you. So Father, I pray you would help us to get a fresh understanding of that reality tonight, Good Friday, 2020. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you, and thank you so much for joining with us. One announcement as we close. Please join us on Easter Sunday at 11 a.m. for our stream. We will talk about Easter, and what if there was no Easter? I mean, all the churches are closed. No church is open to celebrate Easter. We're doing it all online. What if there wasn't really an Easter? What if the resurrection of Jesus never happened? You've come this far and you've learned about the death of Jesus. Well, what if the resurrection never really happened? Would that have any impact on our lives? We will talk about that on Sunday morning. If you are visiting with us, you have no church home, we want you to join with us at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning, and we want you to be a part of the quiz that we are going to do in the afternoon the winner is going to take home, well, not take home, I'll send it to your house, a brand new iPad, 10.2-inch screen, 128 gigs. This thing is worth $600, all right? And the winner is going to take it home. So you have no church home and you're watching? Ooh, I want you to be there Sunday morning at 11. God bless you. Have a great night and happy Easter, everyone.